Good morning and welcome to An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, a podcast where we try and work out what makes a good life despite having no qualifications to do so. My name is Adam and with me as always is Mr. Nicholas Schmale, the bard of Geneva, the rapper Kamau, and an all-round stand-up guy. How are you doing, Nick? Thank you, Adam. I'm uh, growing warmer on your introductions. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm starting to become a fan of them. I'm feeling pretty good myself. I'm a little sleepy, you know, but um, I'm hoping this conversation can uh, maybe resolve that a little bit. A little sleepy, that's a little on the nose, uh, but makes for a perfect segue because our topic for today is indeed sleep and how we can get enough and just have a real good time while doing it. Did you, did you get enough sleep before we started? Uh, what is enough sleep? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we're going to find out. <laughs> hopefully we are going to find out. I got, an, I got an amount of sleep. Well, I hope so. Did you get an amount of sleep? I did. I did. Great. So here we are. Here we are. I have some. Uh, I have some quotes here that might yeah. just sort of inspire us to, to think about sleep. Get get the conversation flowing a little bit. Um, no, not Remy today. Today, the first comes from um, the you know sort of the Italian uh, Renaissance polymath. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci and the second comes from our boxer called Muhammad Ali perhaps you've heard of him so I'll start with the Leonardo da Vinci one as a well spent day brings happy sleep so a life well spent brings a happy death what do you think about that Nick? wow yeah (laughs) I'm not really sure how to react to that so as a as a day well spent brings brings a happy happy sleep. sleep yeah a life well spent brings a happy death yeah right well i think that makes sense actually i mean it's a fairly long controversial quote i think uh he's saying that that sensation that you get at the end of a productive day where you feel like you've really made the most of the hours available to you and accomplished what you set out to do or at least some of that enough to keep you satisfied and fall into a contented self-contented peaceful slumber at the end of the, the day is also perhaps the coziest way to die at the end of a long, fulfilling life. Yeah, I I think uh, I've often had days where, well, not often because I'm not a terribly productive person, but I've occasionally had days where I thought, oh, what a great day. I've completed everything on my to-do list. Might as well die. (laughs) Well, no, see, I don't think... I think that's... No, no, because it's a question of scale. You see, and I think the problem with being generally unproductive is that as soon as you become productive once, you think, well, that's it for me. <laughs> I've peaked and tomorrow couldn't possibly be any better. I think I think instead mm. of saying might as well die, you should just say I might as well get a good eight hours. I might as well try death out in its little trial period. Yeah, yeah. Um well, the reason I selected this quote in particular was because I happen to know something about the sleep patterns of Leonardo da Vinci. Which is that he... Now, while I'm sure there is a lot of misinformation about the man, possibly including what I'm about to say and possibly what I've already said, apparently he would just sleep for 20 minutes every four hours. And that was his sleep cycle. Yeah, that's quite incredible. Yeah. What I reckon is he... Apparently Margaret Thatcher also did this or something like that. I I know who I prefer. But I think what, what we're really saying is that Leonardo da Vinci got a full day's work done every four hours. Yeah, and yeah. He, he was so he efficient. Thought, I've done so much today. Yeah, he was actually 165 by the time he died. 
Yeah, that's quite something. The thing is, the, the, the one thing that offsets me about that fact in particular is that I can understand perhaps the value of reaching an extreme level of efficiency where essentially you survive on very well-regulated power naps. Mm. But for you to sleep 20 minutes of every four hours in a day, there are six times four hours in a day, which is a six times 20 minutes. Those are just two hours of sleep every 24 hours. Yeah. That's nowhere near the eight hours that science recommends. And maybe they weren't recommending it back then, but I don't think our needs as humans have changed. So he would have been a severely, severely sleep-deprived individual. And uh, I don't know if that will have resulted in some of his productive genius or surely have made it impossible to accomplish everything he did. I don't know. I would take that fact with a pinch of salt, much as it is fascinating. So would I. I don't know if you've ever um, played the the historical documentary drama Assassin's Creed 2, but... Uh, <laughs> okay, for your sake, I'm just going to let that slide. Leonardo da Vinci uh, popularised coffee, so maybe... Well, that, uh, that would go some way towards explaining that would go some it, way towards yeah. it yeah. Anyway, the second quote I, I've got for us today is from Muhammad Ali, and it's only tangentially related, but it was just... So um, so poetic. I thought I would. I would read it. The man is a gifted is a gifted orator. Ali's got a left. Ali's got a right. When he knocks you down, you'll sleep for the night. And when you lie on the floor, the rest counts to ten. Hope and pray that you never meet me again. Now, I picked that because it started off so well, and then the the just syllable pattern at the end just fell apart. (laughs) It didn't make any sense. It it was building to something yeah. and then just and then just shot the balloon out of the air that yeah. it was building well, to. Well the thing about Ali is that actually a lot of his quotes sound kind of like nursery rhymes. And and I don't mean to insult the man because he was the greatest boxer of all time. Yeah. Personally, one of my favourite athletes ever. But the reason why those landed so often is because of the charisma with which he said them. Right, and, yeah. Uh, when those were then translated into print or said by others, they didn't quite have the same punch, if you'll excuse the punch. Hey! But that being said, Ali did at some point convince himself that he was not only the greatest boxer alive, but also the greatest poet of all time. <laughs> and I don't actually know if he eventually published this, but he did spend some time neglecting his training camps and working on a poetry book of his own sayings. So he did take his literary endeavours very seriously. And apparently his role as a a sort of Morpheus character who just dished out naps with his magical (laughs) fists. Well, yeah. Again, that's also very euphemistic because I wouldn't equate getting knocked out with going to sleep. I think that's a very (laughs) different state of unconsciousness. Um, Quite possibly. I wouldn't know. I've never been uh, knocked out. Yet. Yet. The, the, the day is young. <laughs> exactly. You might sleep like a baby. I may well do. But yeah, Nick, I believe you've been doing some reading on, on sleep that wasn't learnt from Assassin's Creed 2 or a cursory internet search. So would you like to share that with us? Well, yeah, much as that would be hard to believe. <laughs> I have indeed been doing some research. Primarily my research comes from a book called Why We Sleep which is a recent bestseller by Matthew Walker, who is a neuroscientist at Harvard University who has dedicated his uh, career of studying the brain in trying to understand why it is we sleep, how it is that we sleep, and what function it has on the body and what role it has played in our evolution as well. 
and uh, he has given me some fairly interesting, interesting thoughts about sleep. Some of them are just insights as to how we sleep and what triggers those things. And um, without ripping off all of his content, I'm going to provide some thought a little bit <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah, this isn't the audio book of why we sleep. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm nitpicking certain pieces of valuable information and I'm presenting them in exactly the same way he did. Great. But, <laughs> but minus, minus the several degrees in a tenured position at Harvard <laughs> University. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> freedom of information. Yeah, so w what I learned uh, in this fascinating book is that there are two things which dictate the, um, the impulse for sleep. And right. the first is what's called an internal circadian rhythm, which uh, circadian, coming from some ancient language, circa around Andean day about the day it's the it's latin it's latin <laughs> i know it's latin <laughs> but yes yeah, so uh the circadian rhythm was actually discovered in uh the 18th century the early 18th century by a scientist who was studying a plant actually uh the mimosa pudica which uh was a plant that followed the rhythm of the sun through a process called heliotropism and it's, it's, I was about to say feathers, <laughs> it's leaves. <laughs> I was, that's, that's funny because I was about to say, Nick, you sound so learned and like you've really, you know, di dove into the science for this podcast. But no, you're just chilling there with your plant feathers and... <laughs> the leaves of this plant would flare up and look full of life and energy as they followed the trace of the sun throughout the course of the day, even when the sun wasn't explicitly visible in the sky due to clouds and other weather factors. And then at night, the plant would fan and look, you know, sort of half dead, only to revive itself again in the morning. And uh, so intrigued by this process, uh, the scientist isolated the plant and put it in a dark box and with no exposure to sunlight and the occasional opportunity for observation what he realized is that the rhythm remained consistent and so what that means is actually hmm. the plant was following its own internal rhythm which essentially matched that of nature around it and following the same pattern now the same is true of humans yeah humans also have an internal circadian rhythm which is essentially like an internal clock it is not exactly accurate however it operates on a cyclical basis, obviously, but takes slightly longer than 24 hours for it to repeat itself. I don't know why that is. It's just slightly inaccurate. Yeah, I hear that spacemen get like a 25-hour circadian rhythm rather than a 24 one. Spacemen, astronauts. <laughs> Science. <laughs> on, on average, we're about 15 or 16 minutes beyond the 24 hour mark in our okay. circadian rhythm so if we were to go on sort of at length without exposure to natural factors such as sunlight or regulated eating times which allow us to discern exactly what time of the day it is and therefore allowing us to main maintain a circadian rhythm that is accurate to the time of day and reflects an exact precise 24 hour cycle we would eventually fall further and further off the mark uh, another interesting fact about this is that because 
our circadian rhythm is slightly longer than a day. We also cope with jet lag slightly easier when traveling westward because that obliges us to extend the length of our day rather than eastwards, which obliges us to shrink it. Yeah, some thoughts on that there. And your circadian rhythm is independent of your sleep. It determines your sleepfulness and your wakefulness, but essentially it goes up and down at the same continuous pace. So it's not affected by how or when you sleep, uh, at least not in the short term. So what do you think? What was his name? Matt? Uh... Matthew. Yeah, Matt. We'll call him Matt. Matt. <laughs> Matty. <laughs> Matthew Walker. Matthew Walker. What What would? What might he make of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's sort of four-hour, twenty-minute circadian cycle? Would Horse you say shit. no? That's nonsense. Horseshit. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think he he. Um, so that, that so there is that. So there is the internal circadian rhythm, and so there are ways in which you can track that. Which, are, for instance, every day at the same sort of time, your body temperature varies. And drops mm. to its lowest when you're naturally most prone to go to sleep and rises again at the beginning of your day, peaking sort of in the early afternoon. And there are other factors which can be measured, which are symptoms of that circadian rhythm. The other factor, however, which influences your sleep and actually determines your degree of sleepfulness is your adenosine, which is uh, a chemical that releases in your brain and... Uh, slowly accumulates the longer you've been awake for. And now this pays no attention to when or where you've woken up, but rather only starts accumulating for however many hours of wakefulness you've been engaging in. And, um, and then is washed away in sleep. And if you don't sleep enough, that adenosine chemical will remain with you the next day, which is why it'll have a knock-on effect for you to remain sleepless for multiple nights in a row. So what does it do, adenosine? Uh, it just creates it, it creates a pressure in your brain and well it's it's basically a prompt right so it's this chemical that accumulates and releases in your bloodstream and essentially is is what induces fatigue right it's it slows it slows your system down so if if i okay so you say it's a pressure yes well it's known as sleep pressure because the intensity of the adenosine affects how dramatically tired you feel. Oh, so it's not a physical volumetric pressure in your brain. I don't believe so. No. Okay. Cuz what I was going to ask now sounds silly. Well, you were going to say if I drill into my head, yeah, could I relieve the really... pressure? Yeah. Well, interestingly oh. enough, that's what caffeine is basically. Caffeine blocks the flow of adenosine. Right? Which is why you create this illusion of alertness because you're not allowing the adenosine to accumulate. However, the issue with caffeine is that it blocks the adenosine from coming into effect, but it doesn't block it from accumulating. So once the caffeine wears off, all of the adenosine, which has been waiting to build up, uh, is triggered all at once. And that's what amounts to a caffeine crash. So has this book inspired you to reduce your caffeine intake at all, Nick? I think so. I think it's made me more sensitive to the uses of caffeine. And I think, you know, we will probably have a separate conversation on caffeine at some other point. Yeah. Um, but I think more importantly, what this book has done for me is given me sort of the ability to understand internal rhythms and also to appreciate that they're all different in different people. And that there is actually a, a truth to the fact that some people are night owls and other people are morning larks. I, for instance, I'm a night owl. You're a morning lark. 
And well, <laughs> well, you you stay up late. It's the same thing as being a night yeah. But owl. so now I have an evolutionary reason for doing so. You have an excuse. <laughs> I have an I have an evolutionary reason, and society mislabels me as lazy. Okay. <laughs> no, I do think there's something to that. I don't think there's any point in getting up at six o'clock in the morning. Right. I do do that. But it's increasingly striking me as pointless. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I have some thoughts about that too. But um, quickly on the thought of night owl and morning lights, yeah. a, a fun little fact um, is is that when we operated as tribes, sleeping was not an isolated thing or something that you did exclusively with a partner, but something that you actually did as an entire tribe. Oh, hello. Right. Yes. That's not what I mean. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not referring to prehistoric orgies. Okay. I'm talking about actual sleep. Right. And um, the, the theory is that the tribe was split into at least two groups that went to bed at different times so that there was only a crossover of, say, four hours in the middle of mm. the night when basically everyone was asleep so as to minimize the risk that collective unawareness of possible predators would bring on the group. Um, so there is the suggestion that actually, evolutionarily speaking, there were two different patterns uh, operating within the same community. And one is what we think of today as the, you know, the modern morning lark, and uh, the other is the night owl. So, you know, I'm just defending my tribe. When I stay up late, I'm just here in order for an awareness to be present. So what you're saying is, Nick, that by if we were to once again become flatmates as we were in the past and I kept up my morning habits of getting up at six and you get up your morning habits of not getting up in the morning, we could <laughs> Rude. We would have an we would have just an a, a totally defensible strategic position. Yeah. So I think there is, a, there, is, there is a balance between finding the value in having one watch over the other, which you have to weigh. Well I'm not doing against... that. When, well, you know, in a sort of sense of awareness, loosely, yeah, yeah, you know. And there is a trade-off between that and the ability that being awake at the same time would allow us, would afford us, you know, with regards to building society, essentially, right? Mm. So there is a trade-off there, which is why I think humans didn't straight up have people who slept during the day and people who slept at night and formed two different parallel societies because there are advantages also to all of us being awake at the same time, which would then necessitate all of us being asleep at the same time at a certain point in the night. Interesting. As a brief tangent, if you want an amazing book about uh, human societies where some people are always awake at night and some people are always awake in the day, you should read Rant by Chuck Polanyi. I have. It's outstanding. It's brilliant. Yeah. I, actually, you recommended it to me. Right. Okay. Right, so uh, beyond just uh, the patterns of our sleep, uh, I think obviously there is the nature of what we do when we sleep, right? And, yeah. and sort of um, the nature of dreaming. And there were a couple of interesting things which I learned about that. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the notion of um, rapid eye movement sleep and non-rapid eye movement. Um, uh, Assume I am an idiot. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so, so yeah, the process of rapid eye movement is... Um, when literally the movement of your eyes flitting back and forth, which also translates in, in your brain waves and how, and how they are gauged, um, is reflective of a conscious state. 
it's uh, it's basically a highly delusional state, and that's when we most that's when we dream the most. Um, and then uh, non rapid eye movement sleep, scientists sometimes aren't very creative, uh, <laughs> is is a much deeper state of sleep. And there's not exact certainty as to why these things happen, mm-hmm. but there is some understanding of that. Uh, the first suggestion uh, for uh, non-rapid eye movement, or NREM, if that's how you call it, is, uh, is that it's essentially a time for us to gauge the memories of the day and for our brain to rewire itself, right? And to um, basically do filing. So our mind is, is um, reorganizing itself, creating new links, and then... In the theater of dreams, it plays out new scenarios with these new links, right? And so actually, although we sleep in cycles of about 90 minutes, where we go from basically wakefulness into deep sleep, back into near wakefulness and back into deep sleep, and we have these sort of one hour, 30 minute cycles, um, the proportion of REM to NREM is not the same throughout the night. So towards the beginning of the night, we're mostly engaged in non-rapid eye movement sleep. So we quicker fall into a deep sleep and spend more time there. And then in the second half of the night, once things have been reconfigured and rewired, that's when our brain starts to dream a lot more actively again. Fascinating. Yeah. And the deeper you are in NREM, the harder you are to, to wake up. And there are stages of depth and intensity to that. But if you are just in a, in a rapid eye movement sleep, uh, it's quite easy to wake you up, which is why so often we, find, we feel like our dreams have been interrupted when we wake up, particularly if it's not uh, in relation to these precise 90-minute cycles. Ah, uh, because, because we only dream when we're most likely to be woken up anyway. So that's why it get interrupted. Yeah, exactly. So we tend to dream towards the end of the night. So actually, if you cut your sleep short, what you're sort of losing out on is the bulking, the bulk dream portion of your night. Right. Interesting. Um, And I have a very, and I have a very beautiful quote um, from this book, which I will then put down uh, after I've read it. And, um, and then, and then we can have some further thoughts about dreams, but um, here we go. If you're ready, Uh, a key function of deep NREM sleep, which predominates early in the night, is to do the work of weeding out and removing unnecessary neural connections. In contrast, the dreaming stage of REM sleep, which prevails later in the night, plays a role in strengthening those connections. Combine these two and we have at least one parsimonious explanation for why the two types of sleep cycle across the night and why those cycles are initially dominated by NREM sleep early on, with REM sleep reigning supreme in the second half of the night. And here's the analogy which I wanted to draw your attention to. Consider the creation of a piece of sculpture from a block of clay. It starts with placing a large amount of raw material onto a pedestal. That entire mass of stored autobiographical memories, new and old, offered up to sleep each night. Next comes an initial and extensive removal of superfluous matter, which are long stretches of NREM sleep, after which brief intensification of early details can be made, short REM periods. Following this first session, the culling hands return for a second round of deep excavation, another long NREM sleep phase, followed by a little more enhancing of some fine-grained structures that have emerged, slightly more REM sleep. After several more cycles of work, the balance of sculptural need has shifted. All core features have been hewn from the original mass of raw material. With only the important clay remaining, the work of the sculptor and the tools required must shift towards the goal of strengthening the elements and enhancing features of that which remains. A dominant need for the skills of REM sleep and little work remaining for NREM sleep. 
So I think this analogy is quite potent in that it really helps me to visualize the difference between these two uh, phases of sleep. So whereas this NREM deep sleep is really kind of filing, sifting through memories, uh, REM or our dream state is the way we build new connections with the memories that we've acquired throughout the day right. and allows us to process them yeah. and add them to the massive memories that already exist and reside within us. So in a sense, REM is sort of the... the creative mode of essentially yeah you've got you've got all the pictures out there you've laid them out in a structured order in nrem and you're making a nice collage absolutely absolutely so yeah there you have it i think uh, i think those are some interesting thoughts on uh, a more scientific aspect of dreams and uh, the patterns which influence us to sleep. Of course, there's a lot to say on this subject. This is just a very basic cursory glance at the book as well, um, not to mention all the other literature. Mm-hmm. But um, I believe you also have some thoughts on dreams, perhaps more from a mystic perspective, if I understand that correctly. Well, yeah, Nick, I mean, for, don't dismiss the science because all the websites I found with this referred to it as mystic science. So um, I think you're fine. <laughs> okay. But yeah, but I think scientist. the crucial word there is mystic. Uh, mystic science, <laughs> yes. Um, I'll just move on. Now, a lot of mystic science about dreams is about dream interpretation. And that's not that interesting because it cuts up with common dreams that people have like teeth falling out, being chased, falling, whatever. And the fact is, no one knows, like, uh, sleep scientists don't know what these dreams mean um, or why they're so common, uh, and neither do the mystic scientists. They just say, oh, if you're, if you're dreaming your teeth are falling out, you might be uh, dreaming about your money or appearance or, right. you know, no one really knows. They just, mm-hmm. they just throw out some random anxieties that people often have and hope that yeah. they stick generally. But... I did come across a, a uh, website called um, occultmysteries.org, which talks about what dreams mean in the form of a conversation between two characters called Bombast and Flitterflop. Now, <laughs> the reason I selected this among the many, many, many mystical uh, dream websites on the internet was one sentence that caught my eye, which um, was, was talking about dreams which said that sleep is sometimes called the little death in occult parlance. Now, I that caught my eye because little death is a French phrase which means something else. Am I right, Nick? <laughs> little death? Yeah, le petit mort. Le petit mort. I'm not familiar with this sentence, truthfully. Uh, we'll, that's a, we'll talk about that off, <laughs> okay. off there. Um, anyway, from occultmysteries.org. But that's not important. I, I highlighted this passage, a bit, which really says, you know, what a lot of occult science says about dreams. Um, and then I thought maybe we could, we could disseminate it. Pay attention. I'm listening. The memory of the sleeper may be compared to a seven-stringed lyre, and his state of mind may be compared to the wind that sweeps over the chords. The corresponding string of the lyre will respond to one of the seven states of mental activity in which the sleeper was before falling asleep. If it is a gentle breeze, the lyre will be affected but little. If a gale, the vibrations will be proportionally more powerful. If the lower mind is in touch with its higher mind, the veils of the higher plane are drawn aside. Then we may see glorious scenes and encounter radiant beings such as we find described in the Golden Star. If, on the other hand, the lower mind is of a thoroughly materialistic animal nature, there will probably be no dreams at all. If the waking memory does manage to obtain a glimpse of a higher plane, as this will be impressed through the neurons of the cerebellum and not by the direct agency of the higher mind, it will receive pictures and sounds so distorted and inharmonious that even a heavenly vision would appear as a nightmare or grotesque caricature. Consequently, there is no simple answer to your question, for no two peoples are alike 
in any way. What what do you think that means? Because I haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> well, I think maybe, you know, if I were to try and understand it from the perspective of the science that I brought up. The science, yeah. I would say that the state of affairs your mind finds itself in at the end of your day, even to harken back to Da Vinci's quote, will have a profound impact on the way you sleep. Because if the process of dreams and the activity of your conscious mind is engaged in assimilating the activity of your day uh, with all of the memories you have previously accumulated and then creating hypothetical alternatives in the theater of dreams, then most certainly uh, the intensity of your day, the emotions which you have felt throughout the day, the, the nature of whatever ex- activities or experiences you have engaged in will play a very different role in the way you sleep. And I think that, you know, we don't need either science or mysticism uh, in order to be able to identify that, but rather personal experience, right? Is uh... Yeah, and I, I think that that, that um, sort of holism of, of health and, and, and of living a good life and having a good well-being, as is the premise of our podcast, is reflected in this other quote that I found from um, occultmysteries.org. It's an organization. <laughs> occult. Um, which is it's, that... It's an occult <laughs> cult. <laughs> And it's an occult cult. Um, We know that diet plays an important role in the production and balance of hormones which affect mood as well as in many other neurological processes. So it follows that what we eat and when we eat it will affect our dreams. Which just seems sensible, right? Perhaps you've had the cheese dreams. I have after I ate very rich fondue before going to sleep. It was (laughs) wild. (laughs) I don't think I've had that experience myself, but um, I hear it's quite a popular one. You should try it, especially with the fondue. Um, I think what's interesting, though, is that both the more mainstream scientific perspective and that of the occult, which uh, you have been looking into, uh, both hold sleep and the process of sleep in the same esteem, uh, With whether that be concerned with uh, the physical development of the body or the mental well-being of the individual. I think that's definitely true, and it, it, it can go beyond that as well. It can be they can become um, powerful symbols, as you, you've seen probably in, in many religions. Like how many religions have an angel visiting someone in a dream mm-hmm. or a god? Um, and this practice in I, I read a book last year uh, about um, oniromancy, predicting the future uh, through dreams uh, on a Greek island, um, as there was a, a weird fashion for in, in the nineteenth century, where some children had these dreams predicting the discovery of idols. And then they actually did discover an idol where it said wow, it was going to be, yeah. which is like a 50-50 chance in that archaeological rich place anyway. Sure. Um, but then there were lots of other prophets who didn't find the idols. But it was still an important rallying call for Greek independence from the Ottoman Empire. Definitely. I mean, we, we, we on average, you know, spend a third of our lives asleep, you know, and that's not an insignificant proportion. And so we should really see to that. Uh, I think we could definitely have a conversation on... Um, the habits surrounding sleep and wakefulness and perhaps the most effective methods of acquiring those, incorporating those into your days, perhaps even the values of naps. But maybe we could have that in a separate conversation. Uh, One thought which I would like to conclude with, if I may, with regards to sleep, is that I think particularly in this modern day, and maybe Da Vinci is to blame, we tend to uh, glorify sleeplessness. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the hustle, yeah. the hustle doesn't sleep, sleep is the cousin of death, all of these thoughts really encourage us to neglect our sleep, uh, 
in the chase for some sort of success or the uh, acquiry of material possessions. And I think that that is quite an unhealthy mentality because if you think that you sleep when you die, then according to science, you will die much earlier uh, if you don't uh, take care of your sleeping patterns mm. and respect that part of your life. And um, so one thought which I would like to leave you with, and maybe you have some, some passing thoughts for that, is that is that intensity, uh, and you particularly are perhaps in a good position to speak on this, given that you have now adopted this very rigorous uh, waking time of 6am, is the intensity of neglecting sleep necessary for success? Do we in today's society have to burn the candle at both ends if we want to achieve our goals? And should that be part of the good life? Or is rest and recovery more triumphant? And is there a class dimension to that? Is sleep a luxury of wealth? Well, Nick, what I'll say is, well, you kind of threw me at the end there because I was going to say something pithy, but now I actually think it deserves a response. Um, which is that, yes, I think there is a, a class element to it and that, and that the wealthy can are healthier than, than the poor. That's not limited to sleep. It's, it's in, all, in all elements. You know, you're going to get poor quality sleep if you have to be... Uh, if you if you have to be up to to do the the various you know jobs that you you need to do to equal out a living, uh, in terms of like hustle and success as a result of sleep, here's what I'll say. As I said to you once before, have you ever seen yeah. how much time lions spend asleep? They sleep all the time, but when they're awake, absolutely, they are absolutely, raring to go. If we if we turn to nature, certainly sleep is um, an essential part of our existence. Um, however, if we look at people Especially like mammals, Da Vinci yeah. or, you know, the, the, the contemporary Da Vinci that is Lee, uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, but have you seen how mad, <laughs> Elon, how fucking mental yeah. Elon Musk is? Oh, Tesla's share price is Absolutely. too high. Goodbye, $14 billion of valuation. Absolutely. That guy rescuing children from a cave in Thailand, pedophile. He's insane. <laughs> Maybe um, it's because he needs to just, he just needs a good nap. Maybe he needs a good nap, um... Maybe, you know, people have found a way to capitalise off of madness. The line between madness and genius is very, very fine. But, and I think it's all too easy to stray over one side to the other. And uh, um, so, so although uh, waking earlier doesn't necessarily give you more hours as you have to go to sleep much earlier if you still want the same amount of rest time, do you think that having a regular and sustainable yeah. sleeping pattern does make you more productive and makes you less tired and also just generally improves your mindset. Have you noticed any discernible uh, benefits to this schedule that you've been employing, although you, you, you doubted it earlier on in this conversation? I don't think that I have uh, no because there you have it ladies and gentlemen adam johnson no i i don't partly because i don't think i've a gotten the times of going i think because in order to get eight hours of sleep getting up at 6 a.m i need to go to bed at uh, i need to be asleep at 10 p.m yeah. which is just hard to do it's like hard to actually get in that into your schedule and then this isn't a problem with getting up early i do it no matter what time i get up i don't get out of bed immediately yeah. upon waking up which is another skill that i'd like to learn how to do at some point but it does somewhat negate the uh sure the effects of getting up early. Not to a huge degree, I must sure. say. I can still get up at, you know, 7, 7.30, whatever. But um, but if I woke up at 7, then I would Absolutely, get up at yeah. 8, 8.30, you know? So it's all well, just it's a vicious cool cycle. Well, it's cool to, uh, despite uh, all that, see you putting into practice some of the habits uh, which we're trying to discuss. Indeed, you didn't do this for the sake of the podcast. This was just a, a personal... Uh, desire for self-improvement that drove you to this and uh, we just happen to be having a conversation that relates to that yeah. so um, 
you know, I, I, I applaud, I applaud your effort nonetheless, uh, and uh, and you're a constant source of uh, of uh, inspiration. I am. Yeah, maybe not humility, but certainly inspiration. On that note, do you have a palate cleanser with which you could uh, bring to a close this slightly longer than usual conversation, which I hope you'll bear with us for? I do, and uh, I would I would just like to say. Um, if I'm ever not humble, it, it's it's uh, out of insecurity. Um, you can't just say that okay. on a whim. That's way too. Okay, Here's well, my fact. That's a, that's next episode. A <laughs> uh, fun fact: in 1943, near the turning point of World War II, the first ever Dickin medals were bestowed upon three deserving recipients serving the British Air Force for aiding in a heroic rescue. The recipients' names were White Vision, Winky, and Tyke, and they were pigeons. 32 pigeons got uh, medals of valor That's in the great. second world war for the british uh, british air force yeah and 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 they've gotten very very comfortable since because they're all over the place now we should <laughs> never have given them we should never have given them such public acknowledgement but uh, no very lovely fact um, and i i made a point of not finding facts that include murder explicitly only implicitly so uh, okay <laughs> No, um, I just, right, I yeah. just, um, this is more of an avenue of research, which I would like to further explore, but actually also relates to war, which is that, um, there was a facility in, uh, Maryland called Edgewood Arsenal, where, um, scientists, uh, tested the use of drugs on soldiers. And you may have heard of some of these experiments. There are actually videos of some of these experiments out and about. Um, but actually, the aim of these experiments were to potentially find alternatives to um, chemical weapons like mustard gas, which were used in, in, mm. in the world wars. And um, this became like a very potent area of research during the time of the Cold War. So whilst the culture, counterculture movement in America started to pick up towards the end, actually, of this series of experiments for sort of 20 years before that, scientists had been trying to experiment by kind of uh, gassing soldiers with LSD or marijuana or amphetamines and trying to see what the results were. And in the end, they gave up the program because they thought it was just impractical and they went back to developing weapons of mass destruction. Um, but I thought that was an interesting, mm. interesting little anecdote. And also one thing that I picked up on that is that the CIA also conducted experiments, but actually these were on civilians, not on soldiers. And those were investigating the possibility of mind control through, through uh, the consumption of psychedelics. So um, that's definitely something I'd like to look into, but definitely yeah. some, some shady dealings here. Project MK Ultra, um, but that was light and refreshing. Oh, yeah, I think I'm getting the hang Thank of you, this. Nick. I'm getting the hang of this. Yeah, I was going to say something about Roman killing practices, but then, but then I had your voice in the back of my head. So let me. T- <laughs> oh, look at that! We're all out of time. Um, Thank you so much Thank for potting with me today, Nick. Uh, I'm off for a nap. And my day has just started, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening, goodbye. and goodbye.